intimidation works. That's one of the themes of a book I've been reading. At the, the book of Revelation was written to people who were facing intense pressure to compromise their faith in Jesus. So I thought I should get to know some Christians who live in our own day who are facing that same kind of pressure. I just finished a book called Captive in Iran by two women named Mariam Rastampur and Marzia Amirizadeh. They now live in Atlanta, but a few years ago they spent nearly a year in prison in one of Iran's most notorious prisons in Tehran. Uh, arrested for the crime of believing in Jesus and sharing good news about him with other people in the hopes that they would believe in him too. Of course, that's not the way that the regime would phrase the charges against them. But uh, one of the themes that runs throughout the book, an assumption of the officials who imprisoned them, was that intimidation works. If we can put enough pressure on you, then you now have to fight not just us, but your own fear. And uh, sometimes that intimidation took subtle forms, like a meeting with a, an official in the regime who would say, we want to help you. We'd love to be able to release you from captivity. Others in your situation eventually changed their beliefs or, or changed their language. And if you would cooperate with us, then we would be able to help you, which is code for we won't kill you. And sometimes the pressure, the intimidation was much more direct. Infidels like you deserve to be executed, one guard told them. Well, that intimidation tactic was not only present at Evan Prison in Tehran, but also in the first century in the Roman Empire. As the empire began toward the end of the first century to, to ask Christians, a question like this, do you love Jesus enough to face our armies, our soldiers? Do you love Jesus enough to face the conflict with your neighbors that we are stirring up? Do you love Jesus enough to face life on an empty stomach? Because we're going to make it really hard for you to earn a living wage. Do you love Jesus enough to face death itself? Those realities, those kinds of suffering the sufferings inflicted by warfare, by strife, by scarcity, by death. Those are the realities represented by the symbols that are described in Revelation chapter 6. Four riders on horses of different colors. And through it all pulses one message from Jesus to his people. Christian, whatever you must endure, whatever you suffer in this world, even if you are threatened with death, take courage. These four horsemen are powerful. But there is a lamb who is strong enough to overcome them all. Let's hear that promise from Jesus as we listen to Revelation chapter 6. Thank you, Donna. So the 
Scripture reading is from Revelation 6, 1 through 11. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray together. Lord Jesus, give us courage to accept the truth that you have for us today. Give us courage to follow you as a lamb. Give us courage to follow you wherever you lead us. We pray in your name. Amen. So the book of Revelation is one of the most kind of painted, portrayed, illustrated books in all of Scripture. And uh, there's a, a famous woodcut produced in the 16th century by a, an artist from Germany named Albrecht Dürer. Um, it's one of the most famous images of this book. It's, it's an image of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The apocalypse is another name for the book of Revelation. And um, if we kind of zoom in and, and look at three of these riders as they come forward, here's that first rider holding a bow. And then next to him, this rider holding a sword and then a rider holding a set of scales. And um, Dewar is just portraying what he's reading here in the text of Scripture. One of the principles that we're learning as we go through the book of Revelation is that Revelation is filled with detailed descriptions of symbols that represent realities. So, 
It is not the case that at some point in history, real-life people riding real-life horses are going to do the things described in this chapter. The realities aren't four riders on four horses. These are symbols described in great detail, and they represent other realities. Those realities are real, and they do take place in human history. What are those realities? Well, the first horseman riding a white horse has a bow, a, a, a weapon of war, and a crown, and the text says he came out conquering and to conquer. In other words, he was already taking over territory, and he's intend, intending to keep taking over more territory. And if this rider is given a name in Christian history, it, it's usually something like conquest, kind of a symbol for military conquest, one nation at war with other nations conquering territory. Now, some interpreters have understood this first horse, uh, horseman on the white horse to be Christ, and the conquest is that of the gospel being spread around the world. And one of the reasons for that is that in Revelation chapter 19, we're told of another rider on a white horse. And that rider is identified explicitly as Christ. Now, he's not wearing a crown on his head. He's wearing a diadem. There are two Greek words for crown. One is for kind of this uh, small victory wreath maybe made out of olive branches or gold fashioned to look like olive branches. Many people could wear those crowns because there were many races to win, many athletic competitions to win, many battles to be fought and won. But only one supreme ruler could wear the diadem. And in Revelation 19, the rider on the white horse, Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, with this great sword of truth coming out of his mouth, wears that kind of crown, the diadem. The great high king wears that. I'm convinced that this is not an image here, a symbol for Christ on this white horse. One of the reasons for that is that in the Old Testament prophets, there are often depictions of different disasters and plagues and judgments coming, and the number four associated with horses of different colors is used in those Old Testament texts. And so here, it's not one good rider, Christ, on a white horse, and three evil riders following, but it's using that same Old Testament symbolism of four riders representing four disastrous or evil uh, things happening in the world. And you'll notice that Durer was one of the earliest artists to portray that, where he, he puts these three horsemen together. It's not... Christ on a white horse over here separate from the other riders. Um, his art is following this same interpretation. Uh, this first rider is conquest. The rider is given a bow, powerful weapon of war. The lamb opens the second seal and another rider comes out on a, a bright red horse. The text literally means fiery red. And so we're, we're to think of uh, the color of blood. We're to think of the destructive power of fire as this rider is permitted to take peace from the earth so that human beings would begin to slaughter one another. 
and he was given a great sword. Um, what's the difference then between, why use these two symbols? It seems like the first one carrying a bow and the next one wearing, carrying a sword are kind of the two images of the same thing. Well, one thing to maybe uh, keep in mind is that conquering and conquest typically involves nations and kingdoms warring against one another, whereas the second writer takes peace away so that people slay one another. So this is not nation against nation. This is neighbor against neighbor. This is just people shedding the blood of other people. Um, the destruction that comes with warfare and military might symbolized by that first horse is terrible. But there's another kind of killing. There's another kind of strife. There's another kind of division and hostility in our world that involves <laughs> civil warfare. It involves neighbors taking up arms against one another. It, there are all kinds of ways in which human beings take one another's lives that aren't part of military conquest. And so Christian tradition has given this writer the name of strife. Third seal, third horse, black horse. Rider carrying a pair of scales in his hand. What are the scales for? They're to carefully weigh out food. So this is an image of famine and scarcity, of not enough resources to sustain life. And then we're told that you could buy a quart of wheat for a denarius. Oh, that helps me a lot. <laughs> well, one person could get by on one quart of wheat for a day. And a denarius was a whole day's worth of pay. So imagine spending a whole day to earn enough to keep you alive that day and then having to repeat the process the next day um, and knowing that when you bought that wheat, you were paying, scholars debate whether it's 8 to 16 times market rate. A quart of wheat should not cost a denarius in the first century. A quart of wheat should cost a fraction of that, a tenth of that. So the inflation that occurs when things are scarce, the, the economic uh, pressure of living in a time of great scarcity. You could buy three quarts of barley because one quart of wheat is enough to feed you, but not your family, not your household. So you might buy three quarts of barley. It's not as nutritious as wheat, and you'll have to pay through the nose for it again, 8, 10, 12 times what the going rate ought to be. Scarcity. Famine is the name often given in Christian tradition to the reality represented by this symbol, the rider on the black horse. Then if you were to study Durer's picture a little more closely, the fourth rider is, is off to the bottom of the, paint, uh, the woodcut a bit by himself, and he's he looks like a skeleton. He's starving. And he's riding a horse that looks like it's half dead as well. This is the symbol for death. Verse 8 says, this rider rides a pale horse. 
Someone who's terrified that they're about to die often turns white as a sheet. White as a ghost, we might say. Or someone who has died or is dying loses color. This is a symbol for death. Many times, Revelation interprets its own symbols for us. And it does so here, right? Its writer's name was Death. (laughs) And Hades followed him. Death says something about the finality of life in this fallen world. Hades was a symbol in the first century of the realm of the dead that nobody ever escaped from. So associating death and Hades together meant everybody's going to die and there's nothing any of us can do about it. And these are the four horsemen. Um, when will these things start to happen in our world? Well, the answer should be fairly obvious. These things have been happening <laughs> for as long as human history has existed. The, the moment that God's people decided to turn away from Him, the early chapters of Genesis, death entered the world. Scarcity, famine, um, Conflict, murder, warfare. In Mark chapter 13, also Luke chapter 21, also Matthew chapter 24, Jesus speaks to his disciples about things that will happen before his return. And he begins that conversation by saying, here are some things that will happen, but it won't mean that I'm about to return. These are things you're going to have to endure for a long time. And he names these same kinds of realities. He talks about earthquakes and famines and plagues and diseases. He talks about nation taking up arms against nation. He talks about families betraying one another and and handing mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters, handing over to the authorities, those who believe in him, for persecution, maybe for execution. He talks about these realities. They're talked about a little more straightforwardly in those chapters of Mark and Luke and Matthew. They're portrayed here using symbols, but the reality is these are things we're going to have to endure until he returns. Well, that's a bit of understanding of these symbols. Let's pull out a bit and feel the power of these symbols. In our culture, horses are a luxury. In our culture, if you get to take horse riding lessons, it's a treat. In our culture, horses are kind of maybe a symbol of a a previous era when life was simpler. Cooperation between man and beast, and isn't that lovely? That's not what this is doing in a first century culture. When you talk about armed riders riding horses, it is an image of absolute terror. This is cavalry. These are the shock troops of ancient armies. If you're a foot soldier and you hear the sound of galloping horses coming toward you, the only option you have is to flee for your life because you don't stand a chance. These are the riders that would intimidate and strike terror in the hearts of people. 
But there's something in our world that's even more powerful. Again, Maryam and Marzia say in their book, that when people learn, well, here are their words, when people learned that we were willing to die rather than deny our faith, they wanted to know what it was that was worth that kind of sacrifice. These women weren't put to death. They were eventually released. But they said over and over again, sometimes to their captors, many times to their in, fellow inmates. We are willing to die rather than deny our faith in Christ. And the response was, what is there in this world that's worth that kind of commitment? See, our focus isn't supposed to be on the horseman. Our focus is on the lamb. Oftentimes in Christian artwork, you'll see this kind of symbol based on the book of Revelation. Jesus is a lamb. Now, don't get distracted by the long tail. You're thinking lambs have short, stubby little tails. No, not if you let their tails grow. Almost every sheep you've ever seen had its tail docked when it was little. Right? A sheep naturally has a very long tail. And so sometimes in Christian artwork, you'll see a lamb and it looks to you more like a horse. <laughs> Jesus is the Lamb of God. Do you remember that from last week, Revelation chapter 5? Who is worthy to open the scroll that represents God's purposes in human history? And John is weeping because no one is worthy, and then he looks up and he sees a lamb standing as though it had been slaughtered. This lamb is victorious. He carries a banner. In Christian artwork, you would see this lamb carrying a banner that represents victory. What does the banner have on it? It has a cross because it's through his cross and resurrection that Jesus triumphs and wins victory over sin, over death, over conquest, over strife, over scarcity and famine, over everything that brings death into God's good world. Jesus is the Lamb. But it's easy to lose sight of him reading Revelation chapter 6. Because he's only mentioned by name twice. Verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And then when the other seals are opened, he opened the second seal. He opened the third seal. He. Well, if, if you don't keep reminding yourself who the he is, you can easily have your attention distracted and you're over here being so frightened about the horsemen and these vivid images, especially if you live in the first century where warriors on horseback are a thing of great terror. You can get distracted and forget the lamb and forget that he's the one opening the scrolls. The horses and their riders are under his power, under his authority. He rules over the horsemen. Back in chapter 4, we learned there's a, a throne, a king who rules over everything. In chapter 5, we learned that the lamb shares that throne with his father. And that lamb is opening these seals. In fact, sometimes you'll see pictures of a lamb lying down on top of a book sealed with seven seals. 
The lamb has authority over the horsemen. Jesus has authority over all of these terrifying realities that bring suffering into our world. We've had five chapters to build up a vision of the Lamb before we ever get a description of death, of scarcity and famine, of strife, and hostility among neighbors, of conquest among nations. These are powerful, terrifying images. But looming over all of them is this vision of the Lamb who embodies the worst suffering ever experienced in this world. So if the Lamb is sovereign over those who bring suffering into our world, He is sovereign as one who has Himself endured great suffering. And He's the Lamb who embodies the most powerful love that was ever displayed in our world world his suffering and sacrifice motivated by love for his people and love for his father are more powerful than all the armies of the world put together over all of human history that is what these symbols mean this lamb his love his sacrifice his death his resurrection are more mighty than all of the murders ever committed on any continent in any century, neighbor among neighbor, hating one another. The love of Christ is more powerful than that. The love of Jesus is stronger than starvation. He has more power to give life than famine has to take and end life. Don't forget the lamb when you're reading about the horseman. When you come face to face with death, it will, um, it will make you forget everything. I've had so many conversations with people like that. People that you would think, they, they've got reality figured out. They know how to live in this world. And then they lose a loved one and they start asking questions that make you think they don't know which way is up anymore. And when you come face to face with that kind of suffering, it will intimidate you. It will make you want to just give up. And here is Jesus telling us over and over again for five chapters. I want to get you ready for facing that kind of reality. I want you to be ready to face death. I want you to be ready to face living in this world where there's not enough to go around. And sometimes people starve and sometimes people don't have enough money to feed their families. I want to get you ready for living in this world 
where people turn on one another and hate each other and, and kill one another like they're animals. I want to get you ready for life in this world where conquest is addicting and the nation that takes over one piece of territory is bent on conquering more. I want to get you ready for living in that kind of world. I want to give you a vision of who I am. I want to ground you and root you in the power of the love that led me to lay down my life and take it up again in resurrection glory so that all of this could be healed one day. When suffering intimidates you and makes you so afraid that you want to give up, don't, don't forget about the Lamb. And listen to His promise that He will overcome. You can't see it very well on this picture because I took it. I took it in Jerusalem in a church outside the city walls. Right in the center of all these apostles and leaders of the church is the Lamb. And if you could look closely enough, you would see that he has a wound on his breast and that blood is flowing out of that wound. The Lamb who has been slain through his death will restore life. Some depictions of this lamb focus on his death and his suffering. And you'll see those wounds. Sometimes you won't. It'll be an image like this. Sometimes you'll see an image with the blood flowing. The wounds of Christ redeeming us. And sometimes you'll see an image like this. The lamb of God. Got that long tail. Going to look to you a little bit like a horse. A halo around his head. Worthy of worship surrounded by angels lifting up their arms in praise and thanksgiving and prayer to this Lamb who is worthy of worship, symbolizing, representing Jesus and all that He is to us. What's interesting to me is to notice this is a mosaic uh, on the roof, the ceiling of a church in Italy. The church dates from the 5th century. I don't think the mosaic is quite that old. But if you look at the the colors. You see a lot of green, don't you? It's vibrancy and life. There are a lot of leaves and vines swirling through this image. There's, there's a, a circle of leaves and fruit surrounding the lamb. And then these four arms radiating outward. And, and they're, they're green plants too. Surrounding this lamb is life. What happened to our horsemen? What happened to death? What happened to scarcity and famine? I see here an abundance of fruit. What happened to warfare? What happened to strife? Nation against nation and neighbor against neighbor. And the answer is the Lamb says, I will overcome. Suffering and evil and death are real. And Christians do not try to pretend them away. We don't play games with reality in the Christian faith. We say it hurts to come face to face with death, with the loss of a loved one. We say it hurts to live in this world scarred by warfare. It hurts to know that famine is a reality. 
And even if it's never directly impacted me, it hurts to know that other people face its impact every day. It hurts to live in that kind of world. And Jesus says to us, these things will not always get their way in the world. They will remain within the boundaries God has set by his purpose to redeem the world through the work of the Lamb. So as you read through the book of Revelation, look for hints that whisper about the boundaries and limits God has set. Read about death and Hades. They were given authority. They didn't have authority. It was given over a fourth of the earth. Well, fourth is still a lot. Don't pretend it away. But also, it's a fourth. Even death doesn't reign and rule and establish its own boundaries. Even death stays within the boundaries that God has set. And those boundaries often run right through our hearts and break them and crush them and cut them and we feel like they'll never recover. Those boundaries ran right over the cross where Jesus himself was one of this fourth who came under the dominion of death and then he rose again. And death has limited power because Jesus has died and risen again. And that first white horse, the rider, conquering with his bow. What kind of crown was he given? Not a diadem. Not the golden crown that says he's the highest ruler. Crown. Victor's crown. Laurel wreath made of olive, olive branches. It won't last forever. While it lasts, it will hurt. Living in this world, torn by war, hurts. But it won't last forever. There are hints throughout this chapter that the Lamb is reigning and ruling, that human agents of evil are finite creatures. They are not infinite like Jesus is. And the evil accomplished by human agents in this world will always remain within the boundaries of what humans can accomplish. And it will be terrible, and it will be evil, but it will not be permanent. It is not eternal. It will never be infinite because the Lamb will overcome the horseman. Verse 6, a voice cries out, pay ten times what it's worth for one day's worth of food. Feed your family this garbage food that you'd normally feed your cows and oxen, barley, but also, don't harm the oil and the wine. In a time of drought, wheat and barley die quickly. They don't have deep roots. Oil comes from olive trees. Wine comes from grapevines. They have deep roots. God has woven life into his good world, and human beings are not powerful enough to overturn what he has done. Life has deep roots because of the goodness of God and because of the work of Jesus the Lamb. Life will flourish again. There will be more green in the picture. Durer's art depicting the horseman is black and white, and there's a lot of black. 
There's a lot of intensity in those images and a lot of harbor. When the church portrays the lamb, the green comes out and the vines and the leaves and the fruits. You and I don't think of lambs as being stronger than horses. But the lamb will overcome. Sometimes Christians will be killed because they're found guilty of believing in Jesus. The fifth seal speaks of that. I saw under the altar God's heavenly throne room depicted with the symbol of a temple. Under the altar I saw the souls of those who had been slain because they believed in the word of God. And they bore witness that Jesus is the Son of God. And they cried out with a loud voice, Sovereign Lord, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood? It's not a, this is not a prayer of personal vengeance or revenge. Some people read it that way. Some people read this verse and they say this is not a Christian prayer. It's not appropriate to belong in the Bible. It's not appropriate for Christians to think this way. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus intends us to read these things and believe them. It is appropriate to pray a prayer like this. It's not a prayer of personal revenge. It's a prayer that says, Lord, the world said believing in you made us guilty of a crime worthy of death. When will you reverse the verdict? When will you say that it wasn't wrong to believe in you? When will you show the world that it wasn't foolish of us to love you more than life itself? When will you reverse the verdict? And the Lamb says, here, here's a white robe. The verdict is reversed in my sight. And one day I will make it known to the world when I return. Verse 12 talks about opening the sixth seal. As we get closer to the return of Christ, I will return. <laughs> but until then, verse 11 says, rest a little longer. Rest a little longer. Notice that Jesus doesn't give permission to his people on earth to form an army and conquer or destroy those who reject him. That would be a misuse of the Bible. Totally missing the logic of this chapter. Reading about the Lamb and his promise to those who have been slain is supposed to make those of us who have not yet faced death for him have greater courage to bear more suffering. Not to go out and inflict suffering on those who don't love Christ, but to endure more suffering following in the steps of the Lamb who was slain who conquered by love. Back in Evan prison, Mariam and Marzia were given one last hearing 
before a court. One last chance to cooperate by changing their beliefs. In that moment, to the judge, knowing what was at stake, the law said that they should be executed. Marzia said, we don't believe in Christ the way that other religions do. Jesus is everything to us. Any view that diminishes his perfect completeness, she said. Any view that diminishes his perfect completeness is false. And nothing you can do to us will make us deny that truth or water it down. A statement had been prepared by a lawyer, and all they had to do was sign it. And she said, Jesus is too perfect for us to do that. His perfection actually gives us courage to face hardship and suffering. Why? Because his perfection outweighs all the suffering in this world. It outweighs the havoc spread by nations conquering nations, by neighbors fighting and killing neighbors. The perfections of Jesus outweigh scarcity and famine and starvation and deprivation. He is perfect enough to outweigh death and disease and disaster. The world will constantly show us pictures of four terrifying, trampling horsemen. And Scripture shows us again and again and again the love of one slaughtered yet mighty lamb so that we can take courage because we know that the lamb will overcome the horsemen.